The title of our message today is Jesus Keeps Working Miracles. The subtitle is God Establishes the Church with Supernatural Signs. That's where we are in the book of Acts. God is going to establish the church, which we are now a part of, back in the infant days by supernatural signs, by miracles. The church has had its first two attacks, one from outside and one from inside. You remember that the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection and don't believe in miracles, uh, saw a commotion in the temple, and Peter and John had healed a man who was lame from birth in the name of Jesus Christ. And when they looked at Peter, and as if Peter had done it, Peter said, uh, Peter said, why do you look at me as though I've done such a thing? It's in the name of Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, that this man is before you healed. And the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, arrested him for healing a lame man. Now, there's probably another charge attached to that. But later on, Peter says, it is because a man is lame that we are standing here in front of you today. And so they threatened him, don't you preach the gospel, don't you preach in the name of Jesus anymore, or else. And they let him go. That was the very first opposition the church received. There was a threat. Their response, they went and prayed for boldness. And the room they were in was shaken, and they spoke the word of God with all boldness. The second attack came from within. And this is often the way the church is attacked. It's attacked from outward and it's attacked inwardly. There are those ravenous wolves outside and there's inwardly men that raise themselves up and draw people unto themselves. And so Ananias and Sapphira in a system that never should have been done. We talked about this last week. They had a system where everybody started sharing everything in common. Sounds like a good idea. People that had money, a lot of money, sold their land and came and brought their gifts and laid them at the foot of the apostles. Sounds like a good idea. Until you realize Jesus said, don't do that. They're doing exactly what Jesus said, don't do. He said, when you do your charitable deeds, do them in secret. Your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. This, hello, apostles, amazing, miracle-working apostles. Here's my gift that I give a large amount of money. And everybody's like, yes, 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 wonderful. So the Bible has descriptive things and prescriptive. Descriptive is it's describing what happened. Prescriptive is it's telling you what to do. That is descriptive. God never told them to do that. In fact, he told them not to do that. So it's describing what they did. And I hope that doesn't shake you up too much that the apostles would make a mistake, okay? The apostles are just people. They made a mistake. And so Ananias and Sapphira saw that and they went, well, we want to get an applause. We want people to think we're amazing. Let's sell our land and bring it to the feet of the apostles. Only let's keep a little bit back. So we had the first lack of integrity that entered the church. Now that could spread. And over the years, a lack of integrity within the church has spread. But this is an infant state. God's going to reach the world through the church. God said the Messiah is going to come through Israel and it's going to bless all nations. And the way the Messiah blesses all nations is by establishing the church and the churches around the world today, blessing all nations. So it was established and Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives because of that. And, and we talked about it last week, but people argue whether or not they're genuine Christians. But that was the inside attack and they survived that. So what is the state of the church 
after the first outward attack and the first inward attack. Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. So it was a satanic attack inwardly. It was a satanic attack outwardly. What's the state of the church? Where's the church at now after having its first two attacks? Well, that's what we get in verses 12 through 16. We get the state of the church after its first two attacks. So Acts 5, verse 12, and throughout and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now they're doing pretty good. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders are being done among the people. God's showing himself to be in approval of what the apostles are doing by signs and wonders. And they are meeting together in Solomon's porch. Now Solomon's porch is an area that's larger. It's a lar it was a larger area within the temple meeting. And I just want to address this briefly because there are house churches and there are larger churches. And often inside of the house church movement, the house church will say, this is what God wanted, this is what the early church did, and, and larger churches are not what God wants. Now, in larger churches, especially where there are celebrity pastors, we call them green room pastors. These are guys that just hang out back all the time, and they're not going to get out and mix with the people at all. And when it's time to preach, they come out, and they preach. And, and we've seen a lot of scandals among green room pastors or among celebrity pastors. Sometimes people will say, well, you're, you're the celebrity. I'm like, please don't say that. Please don't ever say that again. Please do not say that about me. Because it's, yeah, anyway, just don't say that about me. It's, they're, they're the small churches. The small churches have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. Small churches can have a leader that has no checks and balances and they can get out of control and they can be overbearing towards the people. They can start telling people what they can and cannot do, who they can marry, who they can't marry. But also they can be very good because you get to know one another. And accountability is really good in a house church. Here's the thing. The Bible never tells us how to do church. It tells us that we're supposed to have church. We're supposed to have bishops, which are pastors. And we're supposed to have elders. And we're supposed to have deacons that oversee the physical uh, ministry to the body. But it never says how big a church can be or how big it can't be. Paul was in the school of Tyrannius in the church of Ephesus, and there were house churches. Here's the bottom line. House church is good. Large church, good. Church, good. That's the bottom line. And things work differently in different cultures. There are cultures like China where you have to have house churches because they will not allow other churches outside of it. There are other places like the United States where a physical local church seems to work better than a house church. There are house churches. It just doesn't seem to take off or catch as much as, as a local church in a community does. So it's just those kind of things. So Solomon Porch, side note, probably shouldn't have got into it, but I did. All right, so we come back to verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done. Now, these are miracles. They're healing people. People that have been lame for their whole life are being healed. And I have a question for you. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that God can do miracles? Let me ask you another question. Do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe that behind the natural laws, there is something supernatural that takes place? Now, if you believe in the supernatural, you're more prone to believe in miracles because you're seeing something that goes against the laws. When God created the world, he created it with laws. There's the law of gravity. There's certain laws. And when, when those laws are broken, that's when it is miraculous. It can't be 
um, kind of a slight change in a law or uh, I can, there's a law of gravity. As a person, I can lift up my, my iPad and I've just, I've just broken the law of gravity. So I just came in and changed the law of gravity. So it's not just overcoming a law, it's overcoming a law in a way that, that is, is spectacular. And that's what a miracle is. Now, should you believe in miracles, there are, how many miracles do you think there are in the Bible? About, there's about 250 miracles that are in the Bible. And that's in 2,000 years, about 1,500 years, 2,000 year book that these things are written. So that's one miracle every eight years or so. But it doesn't work that way. There are clusters of miracles in four different places. There is the miracle of creation in Genesis, the creation of the world, the creation of man, the creation of animals. There is the, there is the miracles of Moses. We need the plagues of Egypt, the miracles in the wilderness protecting the children of Israel. That was to God, God giving a sign of approval on the law. There were the miracles of Jesus, which were miracles to show his salvation was great and that God was bringing salvation to the world by Jesus. There was the miracles of the apostles, which was God giving significance or showing a sign that these guys that are doing these signs are gonna write the New Testament and the New Testament is important to us because of the miracles that were done by the apostles during then. Now God still does miracles today. They just seem to be scattered throughout. God doesn't do a bunch of miracles, and there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, the more miracles you see, the more responsible you are to believe. And people who see miracles and don't believe will have a harder day on judgment. Remember that Jesus said to Corazon and Capernaum, these were the two cities where most of the miracles were done of Jesus? He said it will be more tolerable for the city of Tyre in your day because if the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre, they would have repented. There was something about the, the nation of Israel, they're holding on to tradition that they would not give in to the miracles even though they saw them, even though they experienced them. And because they didn't believe, they had a higher responsibility. And so the fact that God doesn't do miracles all the time is compassionate to, to some of us because our judgment will not be as bad. But also, you can't have miracles be a regular thing. It wouldn't be a sign anymore. If miracles were done every day, it wouldn't be any, I can't say believe in Jesus because he rose from the dead. And this is from Frank Turek. Frank Turek would say, well, my uncle Carl just rose from the dead. What is, who cares? If, if people were rising from the dead all the time, then the, re, the resurrection of Jesus would not be significant. So miracles, by what God's doing, have to be rare, but they are clustered, giving a sign to look in a certain place. So you look where the miracles are, and that helps you to see the significance of the creation of the world, of the law, of the salvation that Jesus brought, and of the work of the disciples to plant the church. God did miracles during those times. Let's just talk about creation of the world for a second. We could do an entire study if not three or four, on the creation of the world. God, who is spirit, and who, we, who had already created the spirit realm, so there were angels, there were cherubim, there were stars, there were sons of God. Job says, uh, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world and the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? 
And we go, who are the morning stars? Never heard of the morning stars before. Who are they? And who are the sons of God? So that's the invisible world that God created. So God, in eternity past, somewhere, created the invisible world. And then God created the physical world out of nothing. We know matter had a beginning. Scientists now tell us it had a beginning. There was a big bang when something came from nothing. There was a point when something came from nothing. Now let me ask you this. Do you believe that something came from nothing? Do you, if you're a non-believer. If you're here today and you're like, I don't know why I'm here in church, but here I am, got to listen to this guy. For how much longer? Not a half hour? Oh, you know, finish me now. Do you believe that something came from nothing if you're a non-believer? And if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, do you believe something came from nothing? We all believe it. I don't know anybody who says, not me. I don't believe something came from nothing. They used to believe that the universe always existed. But now the universe is expanding at a rapid rate away from us. Every direction we look, there is a red shift in the light and we know that that means it's moving away. Not only that, they found background radiation, which they predicted would be there from the Big Bang, and then they found it. And scientifically, when you say that there's something and you find it, that becomes, that's how the theory of relativity was discovered. They predicted that you'd be able to, that a, a, a planet or star would curve the space around it, and they'd be able to see something behind something by looking at it, and they found the prediction to be true. So, not only did something come out of nothing, that would be miraculous in itself. I almost fell down the stairs. That'd be bad. <laughs> That'd be unique. You guys have a story to tell if I fell down those things. Um, so I'm going to get closer. Uh, if a giant blob was created out of nothing, God just created a giant blob out of nothing. That would be one thing. But God created an ordered universe where there were laws which allowed there to be suns and planets that rotated around the suns and, and, and moons that would rotate around planets that would allow there to be oxygen, a magnetic field that would allow the conditions to be just right for there to be life. That's the fine-tuning argument of the universe. And it's interesting, when you ask atheists, what's the most powerful argument for God they'll say the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, I'm not saying they don't have their arguments. A lot of them, their arguments are like, well, we evolved onto this planet, no wonder, you know? But you can't evolve onto this planet unless there's a moon, unless there's a magnetic field, unless there's oxygen, unless there's atoms, unless there's the things that have to be here in order to make them and be here at just the right place. If we were further away from the sun or closer to the sun, we'd be like those planets that are closer and further away from the sun. There'd be no life. So God created something out of nothing and he created it orderly and that causes us to go, there is a God. Now we don't have an identification of this God yet. We just know there's a God. That's why 80% of the people in the world believe that there's a God, roughly. I think it's 82%. Some believe it's Allah. About 1.9 billion Muslims believe it's Allah. 2.3 Christians believe that it's, that it's God. So now how do we identify the God that created the world? The answer to that is we begin to look at the word that has the authority of miracles that happen behind it. Now, John the Baptist knew this. John the Baptist, um, 
he says Jesus is the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. He baptizes him, and Jesus goes off and starts his ministry. John gets thrown in prison. And so John sends his disciples and says, are you the one, or should we look for another? Now, why would John do that? Why would he have a, why would he have a crisis of faith and believe that Jesus isn't possibly the one? Because he had wrong expectations for Christ. He was expecting him to establish a kingdom, which is what the Messiah does. He's just going to do it the next time he returns. The first time he was going to suffer and die for the sins of mankind, which John knew, but just wasn't coming about as he thought. So he sends his disciples to ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? Here's the response. And for the media team, I'm going to go to the end of this passage. So I'm going to go near verse uh, 22. Jesus answered and said to them, they said, are you the one or should we look for another? This is what John's asking him. It says, then Jesus answered, go and tell John the things you have seen, heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus says, go and tell them that you have seen miracles. And he gives a list of miracles. Now that's powerful in itself because miracles are rare. And miracles don't happen all the time. Well, that's what rare means. So miracles are rare. And so that's powerful in itself. But the Old Testament foretold it. In the ministry of the Messiah, in Isaiah 35, it says that he's going to come in vengeance and he's going to come and save man. And when he comes to save man, he's going to do these things. Now, let me read this to you. This is a miracle on top of a miracle because to foretell the future is miraculous. And now he's going to foretell the future about the Messiah doing miracles, specifically what kind of miracles he's going to do. Isaiah 35, 4 and 6. Say to those who are fearful of heart, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God's going to come and save you. Then, when God comes and saves you, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For waters shall burst forth from the wilderness and streams into the desert. As I said, this is an overall picture of the Messiah coming for vengeance and, and turning deserts into water. But in the middle, when God comes to save you, the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, the deaf are going to talk. And those are the exact things Jesus did. And so John the Baptist was like, when he heard that, yes, he is the Messiah. Now Jesus added one more thing, and it's of interest to us. He said, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. Do you know the region of the Galilee was a poorer region? The wealthy people lived in Judea. They didn't live in the Galilee. Jesus came and brought his ministry to the poor. It's like there's a theme there, isn't it? As I say, preaching to the poor is our wheelhouse. There are a lot more ready to hear the gospel than those who are wealthy. Doesn't mean we should ignore those who are wealthy, but we should preach to the poor in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, remember he said, and tell them the poor had the gospel preached to them. Jesus reads this section in Nazareth when he's in the synagogue. And then he puts the scroll away, sits down and says, today these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. So here's what it says. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. So John would hear that 
coupled with Isaiah 35, and know that Jesus was the Messiah. The very work that Jesus would do in miracles and preaching to the poor was foretold about him, and that's how we would know that he indeed is the Messiah. Now, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 tell us why God gives miracles, what the purpose of miracles are. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect a so great a salvation? Now, that's an interesting question. How are you going to escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Jesus came to this earth, humbled himself as a man, went through the trials, was beaten, scourged, and crucified, bled and died for you. And if you neglect, if you say, that's not for me, I'm not going to follow him, what's going to happen if you neglect such great a salvation? And you say, well, how do I know that that was true? Because God gave you a sign. A sign is something on the side of the road that tells you about something else. The sign itself is, can, can do nothing for you. If you drive down the road like, and you see a sign that says elk crossing. This one's in my mind because not long ago, I'm driving through an area. I didn't think there were any elk. I used to be an elk hunter. And I'm driving through this area and it says elk, you know, uh, beware of elk, you know, elk jumping across the road. And I'm like, there's elk around here? So I started looking for elk because I wanted to see one in this area where I didn't think there were elk. The sign told me about something else. That's what a sign does. So um, how shall you survive if you neglect such a great salvation? And then it says this, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it, the eyewitnesses, bearing also witness both with signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God chose by his will to give us signs around the ministry of Jesus so you will not neglect so great a salvation. Acts 22, 22 says a similar thing. It says, men of Israel, this is Paul speaking, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God by miracles. God attested to Jesus by miracles. Not only do the scriptures, and people will, these are historical documents, but people will throw them out because they're religious uh, ancient documents. They say they don't count. Not only do the, the scriptures, the manuscripts of the New and Old Testament tell us that God did miracles, but there are at least 10 other sources that speak of the miracles of Jesus. His, uh, other historians, secular historians, that speak of Jesus being a miracle worker. The Talmud is one of them. That's an ancient commentary on the Bible. And the Talmud talks about the miracles of Jesus and says that they were lying wonders. They don't believe them. The, again, this is the Jewish writing from his day. They saw the miracles of Jesus. They wrote about them that they happened so that we have evidence that they took place. And God attested to Jesus by the miracles. God's saying, he did these miracles. Listen to him. One more, and this is out of 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Uh, here at this point, he's writing to the church of Corinth, Paul is. He planted the church there. And as the church grew, the church was just a mess. The best thing I've ever heard said about the church of Corinth that I like to repeat is that the church at Corinth was a dumpster fire of a church. And they were. The whole letter is a corrective letter. Both 1st and 2nd Corinthians are corrective letters to the church uh, at Corinth. And he says to them in the very beginning of, of the 1st Corinthians, you guys are carnal. 
because you guys are sectarian. One says, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Christ. And he says, I wish I could write to a spiritual, but you're not, you're carnal. In other words, if you and I are sectarian above our commitment to Christ, then we are carnal. If you say, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Lutheran, I'm Catholic, I'm a Calvary Chapelite, other than us being Christians together, being Christians is what's important, not our sectarianism. And sectarianism is carnal. That's what he's saying. Now listen to how he responds to these people who are, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Christ. And notice that some of these sectarian people that were still carnal were like, well, you can be a Paul if you want to, but I'm a Jesus. I'm a Christ. And Paul still says you're carnal because you're seeing yourself as better than someone else because of your own pride instead of focusing in on Christ. So here's what Paul says, and it connects to miracles. He says, truly... The signs of an apostle, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 12, by the way. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The signs of the apostles. So God attested to the apostles as well. Now I didn't give you the passage I wanted to give you. Where was that thing? I'll find it. I'll stumble on it here. Sooner or later. All right, this is 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. Just because I talked about it, out of place. Uh, I planted, Apollos watered. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Now we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. So we come back to these miracles that are being done, and we see that they were done in these different times. There's another time of miracles coming along, and that is the, the end of the world. At the end of the world, there's going to be miracles. God's going to bring judgment through miracles and there's going to be lying wonders from the enemy. The enemy is going to have, the Antichrist will have a mortal wound that's healed. It's not a resurrection. It's a mortal wound that's healed. The mortal wound doesn't kill him. It's a mortal wound that's going to kill him and it is healed and everyone will now worship the Antichrist because we saw what happened and he should have died, but he's still alive. And so these are false and lying miracles. So the miracles themselves don't mean anything. If I do a miracle in front of you today, I can tell you right now that it will be a magic trick. It won't be a miracle, all right? I did want to be a magician when I was a kid. I wanted to be a magician, a weatherman, or a preacher. I don't know how those things all connect together. That's what I wanted. But if I do a, a magic trick in front of you today, it could be, look like a miracle, but it's not. Because there's something different. It's only God who can really genuinely do a miracle. Others are lying miracles and lying wonders. Now, let's just uh, take a quick look at what else happens here. It says, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done. What's the result of that? And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Now, when it says none dared to join them, is he talking about the church? Now, nobody else will join the church? No, it's that little group of people that laid things at the apostles' feet that had all things in common and no one lacked anything. No one else joined them. Why not? They went, those people are dropping dead in there. We don't want to join them. That's literally what it says. They had great fear and they're like, nope, I ain't, nope, I ain't joining them. But what does verse 14 say? And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. 
the result of the miraculous signs and the preaching of the gospel in the name of Jesus was that people were added to the church. And God's the one who adds to the church. Years ago in the 70s, there were a couple of guys that would put the emphasis upon salvation for people on Christians, us, you and me. Bill Bright was one of them, and I like Bill Bright. He was Campus Crusade for Christ. But he would point out that only 5% of Christians have ever brought anybody to the Lord. Only 5%. And then it was kind of a, a Gomer Pyle moment. Kind of like shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. You ought to be bringing people to Christ. But here's the thing. God, one man plants, another man waters, and God gives the increase. That's why I read you the passage out of the place there. He says, you, you think you're of Apollos or Paul? Did Paul ever die for you? Apollos watered, I, pl I planted, I planted, Apollos planted, I watered, and God gave the increase. It's God that gives the increase. You do not have to worry about closing the deal. You're not a car salesman. A lot of you would not feel comfortable being a car salesman. Some of you are really good at it, and I, you know, I appreciate you guys who are good at selling used cars. I really do. Some of you guys are good at it. You're like, what can I do to get you in this car today? I don't know, I wasn't even gonna buy it, but here's my credit card. I'll go and, you know, put a down payment on the thing. But you don't have to go around. What can I do to put you into Jesus today? You can start living for him today. What can I do to make that happen for you? You don't have to do that. God's working to do it. I can't do it anyway. When Bill Bright was saying only 5% have brought people to Christ, well, that may be a true statement. And I'll guarantee you out of that 5%, the vast majority of them are pastors. Because we have the privilege of being there during the harvest. We have people that come in and they're drawn by Christ and people have planted and watered and pastors lead people to Christ. It doesn't make the pastor special. In fact, the one who plants and the one who waters is even better because God gives the increase. We're just there. I remember asking somebody one time, just out of the blue, I was doing counseling. Would you like to give your life to Christ today? Yes, I would. It was like a shock. I didn't do anything. I didn't do any pre-work. I didn't do any, any I, didn't, I didn't tell them anything about the sacrifice of Jesus. I just, out of the blue, near the end of the counseling session said, would you like to give your life to Christ? Yes, I would. And then through tears, he gave his life to the Lord. Wasn't me, it was God. God adds people to the church and all you have to do is water and plant. I wanna take, take some pressure off of you. You don't, you don't have to go to Thanksgiving next year and close the deal on Aunt June. <laughs> you just need to go and shine for Christ and water and plant and let God add the increase. Now, I'm not saying if the door opens up that you don't step through it. Don't use this as an excuse not to step through the door when Aunt June says, you go down to that church down there on Camino Seco and Speedway, what, what kind of church is that? It's kind of like an open door, isn't it? You could say, well, it's a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes people's lives. And if you invite Jesus into your life, Jesus' sacrifice will forgive all your sins and, and you can have eternity, Aunt June. See, all of a sudden, a door opens up. I'm not letting you off the hook for that. I'm just saying you don't have to kick a door open. Aunt June, have you ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm just eating my mashed potatoes. I'm, I'm just relieving you of that. You don't have to kick doors open. But let one man water, another man plant, and another man give the increase. Okay? So God was adding to the church, and this is great. Because the apostles are doing something wrong. They're doing this weird thing with laying money at the feet of the apostles, but people are still getting saved. Isn't it good to know that we can be doing weird stuff and God's like, that's just you. You're just weird. I'm going to go ahead and still get people saved. One more verse. 
Um, actually, two more. So verse 15. So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches and the, uh, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now that's a weird verse. Anybody else here think that verse is weird? I, I find it how restrictive you guys are on saying something in the Bible is weird. You're like, no, that's like blasphemy, isn't it? I, I can't say that's weird. It's in the Bible. They took people and laid them on the streets where Peter was walking by so his shadow would fall on them in hopes that they would be healed? That's weird, okay? Sometimes weird things are done. And in the Bible, there are things that are descriptive and things that are prescriptive. Is this prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. Descriptive tells what happens. Prescriptive tells you what to do. So are they telling us to take people and lay them out on the street so, so, so somebody's shadow can fall on them? Is that being said here? It's just descriptive. It's just telling them that they did that. And these people say, well, weird things are in the Bible. That's because people are weird. So anytime you get accounts of people doing things, some weird things are going to be done. It doesn't say anybody was healed, does it? I, does, I don't know, maybe they were. Maybe it was a point of faith for them where they went, when Peter's shadow falls on me, I'm going to be healed. And maybe God did that. God did that to the woman that reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. That was her point of faith and she was healed. It may be that you go, I'm going to church this week. I've gotten a, I've gotten a, a diagnosis from the doctor. I'm going to go to church this week. I'm going to ask God to heal me while I'm there. So you come to church and you ask God to heal you and God heals you. That was your point of faith. You have to have a point of faith where you believe God's going to heal me. I'm going to go ask Pastor Robert to pray for me. And, I'm gonna, and, I'm, and, and I pray for you and you're healed. It's not me that did that. It was your point of faith that you said when Pastor Robert prays for me, I'm going to be healed. So maybe that happened. It doesn't say that. I just want to point out to you, there are weird things in the Bible. So when someone says to you, the Bible's full of weird things, say, yeah, I know, I read it. I know better than you. I read it. Don't be afraid of them. Doesn't mean the Bible's not inspired. Doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean it's not full of incredible truth that will change your life and save you forever. It just means it writes down things people did. And they laid people on the street so Peter's shadow would fall on them, and that's weird. I gotta think Jesus would go, stop it. That's what I think. Don't do that. Now, what happened? Verse 16. So all the multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem bringing sick people to those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, did you catch it? They have been an infant church inside of Jerusalem growing. God has protected them from outer attack and from inner attack. And now the surrounding cities of Jerusalem are beginning to bring their sick people in. The news of the gospel of Christ through the church is beginning to spread. It's spread from Jerusalem to the cities that are around Jerusalem. And God's got a further plan but you know what the plan involves? Hardship. God's going to bring in Saul of Tarsus, who's going to attack the church with venom. And people are going to run. They're going to run from Jerusalem. They're going to run to Antioch and they're going to run to Damascus, trying to get away from the, the venom of the hatred of people towards the church. Why does God allow us to go through difficulties and hardships? Because God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. So the church is growing. Next week, we're going to see the next attack, the next outward attack. 
and they are intensifying. They're going to continue to get worse until they finally leave Jerusalem, which is God's plan. God wants them to leave Jerusalem. You say, well, why couldn't God have just said, leave Jerusalem instead of bringing an attack? Because God is building character at the same time he's building the church. God cares about the character of the people in the church. And that's why we're supposed to consider it joy when we encounter various trials, knowing the testing of our faith produces endurance. God's doing things through the hardships that we face and the difficulties that we go through. Now, just a couple things in closing. And I got to close out because I'm done. A couple things. I usually do three. I'm only going to do two. Number one, it's always the Lord's business to add to the church. You can't save people anyway. Only God can. So you plant, you water, God gives the increase. When the door opens up, you go through that door, right? Aunt June, what's going on? That church down there you go to, that's an open door. Number two, we are called to be disciples. It says that, that God added to the church those who were being saved, uh, that God added, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What does it mean to be added to the Lord? You became a disciple. You become a Christian. You become a follower of Christ. What does that mean? That means you say to him, no longer what I want, but whatever you want. I'm ready, Lord, to do whatever you want, not what I want. What doesn't it mean? Jesus, come into my life and make my life better. Jesus, I want you. I receive you. I invite you into my life. Would you come in and make my life better? Because I need you to help me. That's not what it means. That's not, I don't know what that is. I realize that that kind of an invitation is given quite often. Just invite Jesus into your life. He's going to make everything better for you. Who wants, who wants Jesus in their life to make things better? Which one of us would, me? Yeah, sure. Sure, I'll take Jesus to make me help things, make things better. What did Jesus say? Any of you want to follow me? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. That means today, if you say, I want to become a Christian, you're saying, I got to deny myself. Yeah, maybe it's been a long time since you denied yourself, but you're going to have to deny yourself. Pick up your cross, which means you stop living for yourself. You start living for him. Matthew tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. That's the call of God in our life is to seek his kingdom first. The first thing we care about is Aunt June and the other people in our lives that need Jesus. And we're praying for them and we're living our lives so they see Christ and we are his disciples, his followers. And now I lay down my life and Jesus went on to say, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. So the person here who says, well, I don't want to give my life to Jesus. I don't want to lay my life down. I don't want to deny myself. Then you're going to lose your life. You will one day stand before him as judge and you will lose it. And he's warned you. But if you, you lose your life today, you save it. It comes back to you. This is one of those inverse things within, within Christianity. The first will be last and the last will be first. Take the lowest table. Don't take the highest honor. Let other people in front of you. And if you give up your life, you save it. And if you save your life, you'll lose it. So today... Are you ready to give your life to Christ if you've never given it to him? I'm going to give you that chance in a moment. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take time today to consider these miracles that were happening in the, these different clusters of time. 
Thank you that you created the world out of nothing. Thank you that you created it orderly so there could be life. We are here because of that. Thank you for what you're doing within each one of us. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would be with us and give boldness to those who have never given their lives to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.